All right, First uh, Peter chapter two. What what is um, as I as I got into this passage this week, I thought about what's the hardest thing I've ever done. What's the hardest thing you've ever done? Uh, maybe it's a physical achievement, right? You climbed some mountain, crested some summit, something like that. Long hike, did a marathon. Maybe it's an academic or intellectual achievement. You got your PhD and it was grueling and hard, went through med school or law school, whatever it is, or, or you know, some hard job or project you, you had to solve. Um, when we get to chapter uh, two, verses 18 to 25, I think the application for the Christian is as hard as it gets. In fact, let me say it this way. If you need convincing that the Christian life is not just difficult, it's impossible, then I want you to look at this passage with me. This is, this is something that requires nothing short of a supernatural enablement for us to do. And what I want to do is I, I, I want to I preach the principle of this passage. Yeah, you looked in here and you saw this has to do with servants and masters and all of that. And so we could preach about employers and employees in some loose way, but there's a greater principle at play that I want you to see that I think is so needed for us uh, in our culture right now. And and essentially it is this, that Christians are called to endure unjust suffering. We are called to do that without bitterness, without anger, without revenge, without a desire to hurt the person back. And this is a radical concept. I want to suggest to you this is not possible on our own. We don't have the power inside of ourselves to behave this way when we're mistreated, when we're wounded, when we're hurt. John Piper said something. I'm going to keep referring back to this in response to this passage. He said this, the call to endure unjust suffering is not just merely a rule to be kept, but a miracle to be experienced, a grace to be received. This is not just a duty that we check off. This is not just something we can perform by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. This is a miracle of God in the life of a believer. This is a grace. It is, in Peter's word, a gracious thing. It is a gracious thing. Now, we need to hear this. We need to hear it in a culture of outrage, in this sort of call-out culture that looks for every minor offense, takes pride in being the first one to find it, then goes online or whatever venue we can and tells everybody how offended we are in our hopes of not just getting the victimizer or the person who did it to cringe, but to annihilate them and to destroy them rather than to forgive them or show grace or show mercy. Now hear me, in light of this week's events, I'm not suggesting that in a system where we can can call out for justice, that we should not call out for justice for George Floyd, for Ahmaud Arbery. Like these are tragedies. And we live at a time when we can do something about that. That should never happen. Something should be called out. But I'm not talking, and hear me, let me just say this. As I said this week, if you got the video, we talked about kind of how we're going to reopen and all of that. Let me just say, here's a moment for nuance. Don't, don't hear me. You're, you're, you're going to be tempted to take this and run with it in extreme ways. I want you to hear the nuance of what's happening in this passage, okay? 
So yes, there's places like what happened this week. Yes, there's injustices that should be fought against that we should say no to. This can't happen. But, 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 but I'm not talking about that. What I'm saying is that as Christians, very often we're sucked into the vortex of victimization that the culture puts forward, and we find ourselves, we feel justified in being anger, angry. We feel righteous in retribution. We feel vindicated with vengeance. Somehow we think those things are right. Now look, God created us. Part of our image bearing of God, God is a God of justice. So in that sense, we have as image bearers of God a sense of justice that can be violated. And what happens when that happens? There's there's something that percolates up in our heart and says we demand vindication. And we justify ourselves and say, if you hurt me, I can hurt you back. If you mistreat me, I can mistreat you. I'm justified to essentially become a moral vigilante whenever you violate some some principle of mine or you do something that hurts me or you wound me or you mistreat me. I mean, look, tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. When was the last time you heard a, even a Christian say, I have been mistreated, I have been hurt, I have been wounded, I was in the right, they were in the wrong, they deserve to be punished, they deserve to be rebuked, they deserve justice, but I will not retaliate. I will not criticize. I will not slander. I will not seek vengeance. I won't be the one who settles the score. I will return good for evil. I will bless and not curse. I will forgive and pray and seek peace. You see what I mean? This is not a duty to be performed. This is a miracle to be experienced and a grace to be received. You know why I know this? (laughs) Because I need this. Because I see this in my own heart. I see natural impulses. I see what Peter called in previous verse, I see passions of the flesh that rise up against us and say no, right? Fights against us. And here's the thing. Listen to me. If my flesh wins the battle, If my flesh wins the battle of what God is calling me to endure suffering, to endure hardship, to endure mistreatment, then what will happen? I will ruin my marriage. I will ruin my parenting. I will ruin my ministry. I will ruin my faith. And I cannot overstate the importance of this principle. What what Peter is calling us to, what he is reiterating is this principle in Scripture that says when you come to Jesus, when Jesus changes your life, you are a new person. The old man dies and something radically different comes up. In fact, so different that the culture, if this is happening in our lives, will scratch their heads and say, how in the world? Can you behave like that in the face of this? And there is a temptation every time we open Scripture and every time we see hard commands like this that we will say with the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, did God really say? He really does say it. 
And so let me show this to you. Okay, I'm going to ask just a few questions of this passage as we walk through it. Okay, first of all, I want you, the question I want to ask is, what is our calling? So look again at verse 18, and let's read down uh, to verse uh, 22. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, uh, for you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example, so that he might follow, you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. This is your calling. Let, let this sort of just marinate for a second. Think about this. Peter specifically says he's not talking about suffering when we would say we deserve it. Okay, this isn't the slacker at the office who likes to goof around and finally is called to account and doesn't, you know, uh, uh, change his ways and ultimately gets fired and then thinks, injustice, I can't believe they've done this to me. No, he got what he deserved. And Peter's saying, suffering in that is really not righteous at all. You deserved what you got. What Peter is talking about is that you suffer when you do right. You are doing justly. You are doing the right thing and you're still suffering. You're still criticized. People still wound you with their words. No one notices the good that you're doing. You're punished for doing the right thing. I mean, have you ever been there? As far as I can tell, I did the right thing. And I'm being called out for it, and I'm being criticized for it, and I'm, I'm being, you know, persecuted, whatever we would call that. And what's the natural response? If you're on the receiving end of that, the natural response is, I need justice. I demand justice. Life shouldn't work this way. This is not the way things are supposed to go. Christians should not suffer like this. This is not supposed to happen. Now, why do we think like that? Because at bottom, we've actually bought into a worldview that is totally unbiblical, a worldview that says that karma is real, right? Karma is this idea, what goes around comes around. You get what you deserve, you don't get what you don't deserve. And listen to me, if karma is the operating system of our universe, then our universe is totally broken. There is a virus in the system. I mean, look, if you're observant at all, You've noticed, right, that there are young missionary couples who, with three kids, true story, who prepare to go to the mission field to reach people that have never been reached with the gospel, to give their lives to Jesus Christ, to sacrifice themselves for the sake of the kingdom and die in a car accident on I-70 in Kansas. If karma is real, that shouldn't happen. Or, or the perverted old man who thumbs his nose at Jesus Christ and hates him and doesn't want anything to do with him, in fact, makes it his life's mission to sort of thwart the things of God and lives to a ripe old age, wealthy and with all the possessions he could ever want. This can't possibly, possibly be what's happening. 
And so something cries out for justice. I've been wronged. I've been hurt. I've been mistreated. And when we allow our, right, our heart sits there, and where does our heart take us from there? It takes us to a place where we now start to say things like, I have a duty to make it right. I feel justified, right? I, I have to vindicate myself. I have, to, I have to criticize. I have to retaliate. I have to put things right. What does Peter say? He says, you were called to be misunderstood. You were called to be criticized, to be ignored to be mistreated, to be hurt, to not return an eye for an eye, to not return wound for wound, to not return hand for hand, to not rant on social media because somebody said something to you to offend you. Man, I've got to put them in their place. See, and you think, well, wait a second, Chris. This is, you know, this is masters and servants, so okay, I get that. But I want you to see, this isn't just in that scenario, skip down, just, just turn with me over one page and look at 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Listen to what Peter says here. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. You see this? All of you, not just master servants, not that, right? Every single person who says Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Now, why should we behave like that? Look at verse 21, go back there. He says, for what credit, or verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his footsteps, okay? So he gives us the reason that's the word for, I'm telling you why. And then he says, because Christ also suffered. So let's talk about that. Let, let's talk about what happened. This is the second question I want to unpack with you. What happened in Christ's suffering? What happened when Jesus suffered? Okay, well, I, I want you to see two things. We, we just read it, but he said, verse 21, he says, because Christ also suffered for you. For you, right? in your place, on your behalf. He bore your sin. He bore the penalty of your sin. See, karma says what? Karma says you get what you deserve. The gospel says you got what you didn't deserve. Jesus got what you deserved. He took, he bore your responsibility. He gets all the condemnation and guilt. He bears it away and we get his righteousness. us, the offenders, him, the one who did no wrong and was unjustly treated. If there is ever a paradigm for, for unjust treatment, it's Jesus Christ, right? So, so Christian, what you need to understand is that suffering is not condemnation for you. It might be discipline. It's certainly God using these things in your life to make you more like Jesus, to make you more holy because Jesus did this, you do this. So, so if you're wondering why is it that when we do right, we seem to suffer for it, the answer is because it's your calling. Because God has ordained it for you. Because God is conforming you to the image of his son. That's the first thing I want you to see what happened when Christ suffered. He was suffering for you in your place. But the second is, 
He says he's giving us an example to follow. Look at verse 21. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. What's he talking about? Suffering. Unjust suffering. We might follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus, he's saying, is showing us how to suffer. And what does that look like? Look at verse 22. He says, um, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. This is radical. This is nothing short than you dying and Christ living in you. And this is the pattern for us, not retaliation, not bitterness, not threats, not slander, not criticism, not angry outbursts. See, this is not a duty to be performed. It's a miracle to be experienced. It's a grace to be received. Now listen, how many marriages could be salvaged if this were in play? Again, Nuance, okay? Let's not go crazy with this. You know, somehow you would say that I'm, I'm advocating spousal abuse or child abuse or anything. No, no, no. Okay, spouses can hurt one another in lots of ways. Abuse is one of those ways that our justice system has given us by God's common grace the ability to flee and get people arrested and put in jail and taken away. You will never hear anybody in this church saying to you that what you ought to do is stay in an abusive marriage. You should get out. You should call the police. You should call us. We'll call the police. But understand that even within good marriages, even within what we might call a normal marriage, there is all kinds of opportunity for one spouse to hurt and wound another. It happens all the time. And what do we do? You wounded me, I feel justified in wounding you. I feel justified in my self-pity. I feel justified in my anger. I feel justified in my outburst, my retaliating against you, withholding from you because of what you've done to me. I mean, you look at your life and say, man, I've only done right and I've only received pain. And Peter says, that was Jesus and that's your calling, Christian. Okay, so this is a miracle. Where does that miracle come from? Well, look at with me again at verse 18. Uh, sorry, verse, verse 19. When he says, servants be subject to your masters, verse 19 says, for this is a gracious thing. Verse 20, he says, when, for what credit is it you when you sin, you're beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. By the way, in, in the Greek, the word, and I'm reading the ESV, the English Standard Version. In the Greek, the word thing isn't there. It would simply read this way, this is grace. This is grace. You see what I mean? Where does this miracle, where does it come from? It's divine enablement. Grace is not simply permission. Grace is the power of God enabling you to do what he's called you to do, to live an exemplary life the way that Christ lived for us. 
That's grace. But there's another place. Look what he says again in verse 19. He doesn't say it's just, it's a grace, but he says, for this is a grace thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. You, he says, this is where it comes from. You're conscious of God in the midst of your suffering. You recognize God. God is not just an idea. God is a person. God is a bedrock reality. God is really present. He's he's not just a casual observer who's unconcerned with your suffering. He's in it with you. He's there. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. You see what I mean? This is what he's saying. You, You be mindful of God in the midst of that. But what is it I'm supposed to be mindful about? Well, look at verses 23. Uh, start there. He says, when he was reviled, okay? He says, be mindful of God. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Man, if I could say, what is it worth to be mindful about more than anything? It's the gospel. It's the grace of God in the gospel. But notice what he says about Jesus. What did Jesus do in the midst of his suffering? It says he entrusted himself to God, the judge of all. He entrusts his situation. He entrusts and says, God, I trust you. I don't have to carry this. You will carry it. I entrust you with all the abuse. I entrust you with the suffering, with the injustice, with the hateful words, with the scorn, with the mockery. I entrust it to you, the God who's the judge who will settle every matter so that Jesus could say, unironically, no guile in saying this, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Not, oh God, avenge me. Forgive them. See, this is otherworldly, isn't it? See, uh, the, the writer of Hebrews says, anyone who would come to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who diligently seek him. Do you really believe that? Do, do you really believe that God rewards those, that that is what awaits us? Do you trust that God sees every hurt of yours, assesses every motive, knows every circumstance, and will make everything right? Do you really believe that? That's being mindful of God. See, if if God is that real to you, then when you suffer unjustly, when you're mistreated, when you're hurt, when you're wounded for doing right, what'll happen? You'll hand it over to God. God, you'll take care of this. I don't need to carry around the burden of bitterness or of anger or of malice or envy or slander or threats or talking behind people's backs or vindication. I don't have to revile. I can honor. I can bless and not curse. This is is head-scratching, mind-blowing, miraculous Christian living. That's where it comes from. It comes from God. 
Okay, so let's ask one last question that isn't in this text, but I want to at least show you. What does this look like? What is this sort of otherworldly? I've been mistreated, and I bless, and I don't curse. What does it look like? Let, let, me, let me give you two real-life illustrations, okay? Uh, in just a few weeks, it will be June 17th, uh, 2020, and if you don't recall that date, then five years ago, on that date, Dylan Roof um, walked into the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, told him he was there to study the Bible. It was a, a black church. And in the midst of the Bible study, he stands up and opens fire on the group of people. You, you, I'm sure you, you remember this. And nine people die. Felicia Sanders lays on top of her granddaughter in the hopes of saving her and watches as her, her son, Taiwanza, stands up to Dylan and says to him, why are you doing this? And Dylan responds to him, and it's almost embarrassing for me to repeat his words. He looks at this young black man and says, because y'all are raping our women and taking over the world, I have to do this, and fires five shots into his chest. Felicia Sanders says, I watched my son come into this world and I watched him leave. That is unjust suffering. That is a group of people who were doing good and suffered for it. And if you know the story, it wasn't long after that that the people, Felicia being one of them, said to Dylan Roof, we forgive you. Um, in fact, one of the guys, Anthony Thompson, he lost his wife, Myra. He confronts Dylan in court and listen to what he says here. This is what he said to Dylan in open court. He said, I forgive you. But we would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters most, Christ, so that he can change it, can change your ways no matter what happened to you, and you'll be okay. Do that, Dylan, and you'll be better off than what you are right now. Jennifer Pinckney lost her husband and forgave Dylan and a reporter confronted her after that and said, why? How? Like, where do you go to find that kind of forgiveness? And her answer was, quote, God, having the Lord in your life, end quote. The people of Emmanuel AME Church experienced a miracle and received a grace. That's otherworldly, isn't it? That's the first thing. Uh, Dave Harvey wrote an excellent little book. Uh, we used to use it in our marriage um, premarital counseling called When Sinners Say I Do. And in there, he tells the story of a real-life couple by the name of Emma and Gordon. Gordon was a pastor, 
Emma and Gordon married when they were young people. And on their honeymoon night, Gordon told Emma, the only reason I married you was because for the, for the advancement of my career as a pastor. He didn't love her, and he never cared for her. Now, what would you do? Emma decided she had been shown such great mercy by God that she would show mercy to Gordon. And she endured a loveless marriage with a man who seemed bent on crushing her spirit for over 40 years. Kids understanding what's going on. And she even said that one of the things that kept me there was the gospel of Jesus Christ and I wanted my kids to see the gospel demonstrated. Their marriage ended in divorce. Gordon left his family, left them devastated, left them financially destitute. Emma was on her own. I think they had four kids trying to sort of pick up the pieces of their lives. And yet, even after the divorce, Emma kept writing birthday cards to Gordon. Emma kept sending him cards every now and then, urging him back to God. And in the great mercy and kindness of God, at some point later in his life, Gordon finally confessed his sin, repented, and believed on Jesus. Had a conversation with his kids where his kids were able to say all the ways that their dad wounded them. And he confessed that and repented before them. God restored their relationship. He wrote Emma one day and sought her forgiveness and said, I'm sorry, and tried to recount the ways that he had wronged her and he wanted to write her. Now, you're on the receiving end. You're Emma. What do you do? Like, what's the impulse of the heart right now? We don't have to wonder what Emma did. Because what she did is preserved in a letter. And let me just read this to you. This is part of the letter she wrote back to Gordon. He wrote to her confessing and repenting. And she wrote back to him and says, It is with mixed emotions that I read your letter. Sad as I was reminded of many difficult years, but also glad for the work of the Spirit of God is doing in your life. Glad to hear you share your failures so frankly and ask for my forgiveness. And glad to hear you share them with your children. Gordon, I forgive you. I forgive you for not loving me as Christ loved the church and for your disregard of our marriage vows. Though I am saddened by many marriage memories, I have released them to the Lord and have guarded my heart from the ravages of bitterness. I rejoice in the mercy of God that in spite of our failed marriage, our children all serve the Lord faithfully. God uses confession and forgiveness to bring healing. I'm trusting God that will be true for both of us. See this? That's miraculous. That's only God. That is a gracious thing. Being mistreated like this church is not a duty to be performed. It's a miracle to be received. 
or experience and a grace to be received. Emma Gordon experienced the miracle, received that grace. Now listen, we live like this. This is where Christians, as we talked about several years ago during Sermon on the Mount, become so strange and so compelling that a watching world begins to wonder what's happening there. We have experienced a miracle, a miracle of God. We have received the grace of God. We're different, all because of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you that um, you have redeemed us and have shown us more mercy and grace than we could ever be required to show to anybody else. We thank you that Jesus, though reviled, did not revile. When cursed, he did not curse. We thank you that he gave us an example to follow, that in his active obedience, he obeyed you to the fullest. And God, we recognize we are powerless to live that kind of life apart from the abiding and working of the Spirit in our lives granting us the grace, giving us the awareness, the mindfulness of God in the midst of our suffering. And so I pray right now for my friends. There are those, no doubt, who are watching and say, I have done right and I'm suffering. Some that would say, I feel like punting on this thing called Christianity because what good is it if when I've done good, I'm punished for it? That today they would hear, that's not an accident. That's on purpose. And God is saying, that is a gracious thing. In God's eyes, in the world's eyes, maybe foolish, incomprehensible. In God's eyes, it's gracious. It's being like Jesus. So help us, we pray. Father, I pray. I pray for those that would be listening to this that I would say, I have not put my faith and my trust, my hope in Jesus Christ. They'd hear that he, he bears our sin as we put our faith in him. He takes our sin. We get his righteousness. May that transaction occur today as people repent and turn from their sin and cast that upon you and say, Jesus, I trust that your death in my place, your resurrection to show me the way of the new life I, I pray in faith, believing that's all that's necessary. I cannot be good enough. I cannot live this on my own. And that through that gospel, you would begin to implant the living word and change us, change them from the inside out. Do that today, O oh God, as people call upon the name of the Lord and are saved. We pray that they would. We pray that would happen. And we ask this in Jesus' name.